Love Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, joining the roundtable for this episode, former Republican Chairman of the House Appropriations Committee and Representative of the great state of Louisiana, Bob Livingston, joins the roundtable. One week after the State of the Union, did the President break any ground or break the State of the Union? We also will take a look back at the death of King Abdullah, the fall of the Yemeni's government. How unstable is the Middle East right now, and can the U.S. gain support with these new changes? Moderates taking the front line in each party. Can they survive? Blue state senators, blue state GOP senators breaking ranks with McConnell, red state Dems breaking ranks with their leadership. Are they the new leadership in government? This, oh, we're going to talk about the Flategate. This, and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, and it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's time for Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's second congressional district. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation and former floor chief for then, Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. And to my 130 position across the table, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland, former 20th Century Fox lobbyist, Washington Insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock, she is the former General Counsel to the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my right, where he should be, is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents, former longtime Senate staffer and Washington insider, Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And joining us for our roundtable this week, we are honored to have, welcome back to the show, he is the former Republican chairman of the House Appropriations Committee and representative of the great state of Louisiana. He is Chairman Bob Livingston. Mr. Chairman, welcome back to Backroom Politics. Justin, it's great to be back with you. Oh, so glad to have you back. It's always exciting. Hey, we have got a full show for you. But we're going to start off as we do every year after the State of the Union. Those of us, those who listen to our pre-State of the Union show, and there were a lot of them, we were happy to have Democratic Congressman Rick Larson join us last week. But we kind of went over handicapped uh, what our thoughts would be for the uh, State of the Union. 
now that we've seen it, there's a lot to talk about. Number one, let's get to the heart of it. Uh, start off, Congressman now, when you saw the State of the Union, did did anything strike you? Did the president hit the home run that he needed to, or did he really actually have to hit a home run for this one? Well, I don't I don't think it's possible if by home run you mean it he flip everything over. Uh, no. And that rarely happens anyway. I thought it was a good, solid speech. I thought that he showed some some guts, which a lot of people have questioned about whether he had, even, and that's by raising controversial issues. So obviously that didn't please the Republicans. But I think it's, in terms of a speech, uh, it had some tough things. It had laid down some uh, policies that he wants to follow. Um, most of which will be uh, controversial. Chairman Bob Lisa, Mr. Chairman, did you did you think that the president had to hit a home run? Is there anything that he could have done to hit a home run in this case? Well, I think he had the option of uh, copying former President Bill Clinton uh, when he said the era of big government is now over when the Republicans took over. Republicans have, t- have taken over in this last election. Uh, this president chose to march to his own uh, drummer and uh, follow his own uh, political and, and philosophical instincts. And in effect, he was saying, guys, nothing's changed. You know, he's, he's on his own uh, route, and uh, he hasn't uh, moved a bit. Well, let me say with you, uh, Chairman Livingston, Mr. Chairman, we, this president did something that was not quite totally unusual for a president in his second to last day of the Union. He actually kind of telegraphed what was going to be coming out, did a whole nationwide tour of what he thought the key initiatives would be as part of his State of the Union. Was that a smart play by the administration? Well, it depends think? on what you think his goal was. If you think his goal was, to, as Al said, to change the, uh, the whole direction of Washington, uh, uh, no, it wasn't his goal, uh, and, and he didn't try to do that. I think, personally, I think he was setting the, uh, uh, the playground for uh, uh, 2016 and, and anticipating that his agenda is going to be the platform for the Democratic Party next time around. Bob Hines. I agree with that. Congressman Al, you agree? I agree with that. Bob Hines? Well, I think the president uh, set out a bunch of a number of uh, programs, things he wants to do. Uh, he knows that uh, most of the Republicans are not going to support it. Uh, I don't think that uh, I don't think that he he didn't try to say let's work together. I didn't hear anything like that at all. I'm not surprised, but I didn't hear anything like that at all. Denise, did you hear that out of the president? No, I, I didn't hear that he wanted to work. I, I heard that he wanted to do a lot of executive orders, which I think are going to result in lawsuits, which is unfortunate because we really don't need more lawsuits. We need more action. Um, I'm concerned about him setting the agenda for 2016 because I don't think what his agenda is is going to be the Democratic agenda in 2016 you're going to have to have some candidates that are going to peel off from him because they don't want to be tarred by certain things that he's done. And they're also going to want to show leadership. So while he may be assuming he's setting it in 2016, the candidates that are multiplying are probably saying, thank you very much, but we're going to go our own way. Alan Moore, Denise brings up a a good point when we talk about, he, he kind of set his own drum in the State of the Union saying, look, I still have the White House, I still have the bully pulpit, and I'm going to use the bully pulpit to my fullest extent. Was that a shot across the bow to the Republicans? Not, not really. I mean, I think I think it was more, uh, as the chairman said, a missed opportunity than any big surprise. Um, he, 
he seemed to have a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, maybe understandably, who knows, but you know there was a big there was a big election last November. The outcome was 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 more one-sided in favor of the Republicans than anybody expected. One I would not have been surprised. I was a little disappointed therefore if if, if he had said which he did not. Um let's work together. Only at the very end of the speech did he begin to talk a little bit about you know one country Let's let's try to do some things together, and then then he set out on his national tour to go back to doing what he's been doing the last couple of years, which is to just beat the hell uh, out, out of the Republicans. Um, it's not like the Republicans know exactly how to how to how to play this going forward themselves. They're going to feel their way, but the president could care less, frankly, about 2016 outcomes at this point in time. What he's interested in is getting some things done now with a different kind of Congress, which is going to take some different strategies. There's some opportunities out there. Um, now, States of the Union speeches don't tend to make a lot of news. You don't hit home runs. What you try not to do is strike out. I don't think he struck out. I think he gave a decent speech, covered a lot of territory. He There was a little bit of an, a, a strange alternative reality because he was saying that the economy is better off than, in fact, it is. And he was saying the shadow of crisis has passed hardly. He didn't talk about terrorism and foreign policy much at all, and there's all kinds of problems all over the world. Did, uh, Congressman Al, did, did the president overstate the health of the economy, do you think, or did he call it right? No, he, he overstated it a bit. I, don't, I didn't think it was an astonishing uh, exaggeration, but uh, what president goes to say the union and says the economy is terrible? Um, <laughs> none that I can recall. And another point, something that Alan said brought this up, and he, Alan said, you know, it's too bad that at the end of his term he couldn't talk about cooperation. seems to me that that's how he began his terms, and he didn't get very positive response from the other party. And so it, it may be unfortunate that he did it, but I think he was reacting, you know, he, he's kind of gone in reverse. He's gone from being nice to being assertive. When probably he should have revert, reversed the two. Uh, Chairman Livingston. I agree with that, but he did say one thing that pleased the Republicans immensely. He's not running again. He's not running again. <laughs> <laughs> Although he won two terms. <laughs> he doesn't have to. He doesn't run again. I, I just, it, 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 this is not a criticism of the Republicans <laughs> at all, uh, but the press decided that his, his response to that and ad lib he threw in was a terrible thing, you know, and I thought it was a witty little thing that he threw out there that nobody was particularly bothered by. And uh, it's just amazing to me how the media can craft. You, you know, the, the funny thing about that is, Congressman. We're going to get to footballs later on. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but, you know, the funny thing about that is, I mean, even that remark, you know, got a smile out of Speaker of the House John Boehner. Yes, Even he found that amusing. And that. it seemed to resonate well. It just seems that the press misstated that. Denise Krupp. I want to get back to what we talked about a second ago, which is strategy. I, in addition to losing um, votes, and we didn't, you know, Democrats didn't take the House, because we lost so many representatives, we lost uh, members on committees. I mean, some of the lists are coming out, and it's amazing to see how many Republicans are on one side and how many fewer Democrats are on the other. And that's going to be key because if they want to move something, you have to peel off more Republicans 
that's going to make it even harder. And unless we're about to start playing the game of motion to recommit, which I'm willing to bet that's where they're heading, let's see if we can shame them into doing it via motion to recommit. This is not a winning strategy for the Democrats. It's going to make it even harder for us. Well, Carl, too, and going off of that, though, you, you know, it, it does seem that the, the, the president was setting forth a message of these are the strategies that are important to America, and, and this is something that his administration has done throughout the course of his terms. Was, it, was this a calculated decision by the president to move forward in that kind of an aggressive way, or was, is this something that collectively the Democratic Party is hoping that he takes an aggressive stand? Well, remember, I think, I think first of all, I think this is what he believes in his heart. And this is what he was elected to try to do eight years ago. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing that we have to remember is that a lot of things are said in speeches to Congress. They all don't get done in the first year or the second year or the third year. But most of the time, things that are put in, in the state union speeches eventually become law. Uh, Chairman Livingston, when going into some of the some of the, the, the mechanics of what he brought up in that speech, one of the things he spent a lot of time talking about was infrastructure. Uh, his infrastructure plan seemed to get a lot of Democrats riled up, rah, rah, but was there any substance in his infrastructure plan that he announced that would give Republicans or Democrats cause that we can fix the inherent problems that we currently have in the United States? Well, in fact, we have big problems. And, and I think uh, that if he could bring them together, uh, that uh, he would get Republican and Democrat support to fix the infrastructure. He also raised tax reform. His ideas for tax reform are totally opposite of anything that the Republicans will support. Uh, but maybe they can come together. There's one issue in tax reform that could help the infrastructure problem. And that is the repatriation of the two or three trillion dollars that's abroad being salted away by big multinational companies. They can't bring it back because we have the highest corporate tax in the, in the whole world. And if they reduce that, if they can't try to figure out uh, an incentive for those companies to bring that money back, they can earmark a lot of that for infrastructure. And that could be a major accomplishment for this president. But Congressman, now, if in fact, as Chairman Livingston pointed out, that you know, bring you know, onshoring some of these large tax bases that we're losing out with some of these big corporations who are hesitant to bring it back in the states because of high tax levels already, why is there a reluctance by the Democratic Party to work with the Republicans to come up with at least some sort of compromise if it's not? Seven percent, three and a half percent. There's got to be some sort of middle ground here, but it doesn't seem that the Democrats want to play. They don't trust each other. I mean, surprise, surprise, surprise. Uh, and I think that if anything is to be done, both sides are going to have to understand the other side's going to get something out of it. And I can remember being at a Chamber of Commerce speech back home. And there was a banker there and says, we've got to do something about the capital gains tax. And I said, I have no problem with that, provided you do something for the, for the middle class, for the working stuff. Because on the Reagan tax cut, they didn't get enough money back to buy a round of beer on Friday afternoon after work. And the guy says, no, 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 you don't need to do that. What we need is the capital gains. And I remember saying to an astonished group of, of, 
of Chamber of Commerce people, God damn it, I will not do it unless the middle class gets some of a break there. I was willing to give them what they wanted, but they weren't willing to budge on what I want. Bob Hines? It seems to me that the um, the chairman said the, the uh, they're trying to repatriate that, what, $3 trillion or something like that? Two to three. Yeah, it's a huge amount of money. And that is the kind of thing that you would think both sides would find it valuable to to bring that money back, uh, they could do several things. Obviously, they would. Uh, I'm sure the Republicans would say, "Well, that means we can cut down the, you know, one of the taxes or something like that." But the fact of the matter is, bringing the money back and bringing it back at a reasonable rate, so the, 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 the money is, is wants to come back. So the, the companies that own the money want to bring it back because. The inf- infrastructure would be a huge benefit, something like that. And the infrastructure is one thing that both houses and both parties usually are always in favor of. Congressman Al? Absolutely. And, and I think that, that that particular issue is one that if Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid were shrewd politicians, they would have already set that up as that's a gift. We're going to give it late in the process. We'll get something for it, but that's one that's good for the country. And we don't also want to be in a position of having all of our members vote against that. It's too easy an issue to put in 30-second TV spots. We have a microphone right here. I'll just let you know. I was talking to Bob. <laughs> I guess I, so. I didn't think he agreed with me. So. Just, yeah, I guess so. Alan Moore. Yeah. Off, off my head. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll just... I'll, <laughs> I'll just remind head to the microphone. Yeah. Well, just to remi- remind everybody that we did one of these deals some years ago where we lowered temporarily the rate to try to bring some money back. We didn't begin to bring as much back as we we as we thought we would. A and B companies did a lot of other different things with it, and and so if it, it, it's not a simple matter to just say, "Come on, guys, let's sit around, let's get it together." And there are plenty of Democrats who say we're not going to give these guys a huge break. And there are plenty of companies who say, don't assume we're going to bring it back. We leave it overseas for more than one reason. It's not just the high taxes in, a, in the U.S., which is a factor. But there's a lot of money available in America right now to large corporations. They're not investing in new plant and equipment, and they won't until they see some level of demand. They don't have any particular need to bring it back here and have it sit there may be potential to use it overseas. The other thing is, whenever we do these things, it's tempting to say, hey, this is what the president's doing with his proposal on capital gains. Let's raise capital gains and let's spend it to increase the earned income tax credit, child care tax credit, rather than to say, you know, folks, we still are spending way more than we take in. This year's deficit, which he was touting, is down almost two-thirds from the height. It's the seventh highest in history. It's, it's, it's the highest of every one we've ever had except for the previous six years. And, and there's nothing about the deficit, nothing about the accumulated debt, which it's hard to get people's attention when interest rates are still 2 3 4%. But the hangover here is creeping up on us, and it's an overhang that's, that, 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 that business is worried about and consumers continue to worry about. Chairman Livingston. 
Well, if you like Greece, uh, then uh, you're going to like the United States in a few years if they don't tackle that uh, debt problem. Uh, Alan is absolutely 100% correct. I mean, we've got to bring the debt down. And the only way you bring the debt down, which is the overall amount owed, is to bring the annual deficits to zero and then below zero. Well, you know, Mr. Chairman, you know, the president, and this is my opinion, the president had a great opportunity here to to set out, you know, look, I understand we're spending way more than we are taking in. This is a problem, and we're seeing it globally, particularly in the EU, as being an economic hindrance. He had the opportunity here to absolutely say, look, we're going to get to offset spending. You want this in the budget, you're going to have to cut somewhere else. That you had pay-to-play budgeting. He didn't take that opportunity. Why is that a missed opportunity for the president? Because it's in character with this president. This president doesn't negotiate. He gives speeches. Uh, and he expects uh, the, the tenor of his speeches to be carried out. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But he doesn't negotiate with Democrats, and he sure as hell doesn't really negotiate with Republicans, and that's been his biggest fear. Denise Krepp, he had an opportunity here to talk about comprehensive tax reform. He talked a lot about the middle class and how important the middle class was, but didn't really give any sort of blueprint as to how he can make life for the middle class that much easier. And that's going to be a problem, because he, and I, I'm going to agree with Bob. I am going to agree with, Bob. with Bob that <laughs> There has been a lack of leadership. I saw it when I was in the administration. I mean, I'm, I, and you guys have heard me talk about it for the past two years. I mean, there's a difference between giving a speech and then implementing it, and that's what's going to need to be need to happen. And I say that because my generation and my children's generation are the ones that are going to be paying this penalty right now, which is why, and you're not going to like me saying this, Justin. We need to start talking about defense, but at the same time we talk about defense, we've got to talk about Medicare and Medicaid. Everything has to be on the table. It's insane that we are spending in some of these programs. Well, let me go back to Chairman Livingston. As a former chairman of appropriations, you know, for the longest time, as long as I've been around government, uh, the non-discretionary spending was a third rail that nobody wanted to touch. Defense was a little bit better. You can mess around with defense budget, but we're now at a point where if we don't talk about reorganizing the non-discretionary spending, we've got ourselves a deficit problem. Why is this eluding Capitol Hill? Let me parse that. First of all, non-discretionary is mandatory programs, entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, and all of the entitlement programs that people are entitled to if the law prescribes that they're eligible. That's two-thirds of the budget. For the last many years, it's been two-thirds of the budget. It's shrink It's actually growing, and the discretionary portion of the budget, of which half is defense, is shrinking. So if you don't tackle that mandatory, that uh, that non-discretionary part, part of the budget, frankly, everything else is going to go to hell. They've got to tackle those, and the, the U.S., why are they not? And in and, and, and bipartisan fashion... The Congress shares the responsibility for not tackling it because when the Republicans were in power, they didn't tackle it. When the Democrats are in power, they don't tackle it. They don't want to because it's hard. But, but it strikes me, Bob Hines. He, he's absolutely, oh, oh, go ahead, Congressman Al. He's absolutely right. And one of the things that turned me on this when I was still in the Congress was when, when we began to look at what percentage of the budget went where, as a liberal Democrat, I was stunned at what interest on the debt is. Interest on the debt. Doesn't feed a child, doesn't buy a bullet, doesn't do a damn thing. But it helps the Chinese. <clears throat> and it helps the Chinese. But you, 
that one thing, if, if, if I think the American public can be brought around to a point where they will reluctantly go for some cuts in some of the uh, uh, entitlements, if you explain in clear terms what percentage of the budget goes where. Well, I mean, for me, cutting down crap. entitlements, it's managing the entitlements, the amount of waste that is occurring right now at the federal level within the federal government employees, within the federal agencies, and then those that actually participate in this program. I mean, I would love for somebody to come in just clean shop right now. Well, I, I totally agree with you. That's not saying that they don't have to be cut. Right. No, I you're talking about cut. how to cut them. Right. right. I would go your route rather than you know. Well, let me slashing. let me ask this other question to Alan Moore. Alan Moore, one of the other key facets of this president's State of the Union address, Obama brought up trade agreements. He wants unilateral permission from uh, Congress to invoke all kinds of trade agreements. As a former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, is that a smart play? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, here we go through this year after year, president after president. Presidents propose uh, legislation granting trade negotiating authority. Congress's um, uh, walk. Congress's pushback. Now, the Democrats push back the most. Republicans push back some. Some Democrats say, "Yeah, let's do it." A lot of a lot of Republicans say, "We need to do this." Remember what we're talking about here. We are saying, Mr. President, go negotiate an agreement, and for the next two years or three years, you have authority to negotiate something. Bring it back, and the Congress will consider it without the ability to amend. Uh, it it doesn't say you can go negotiate the authority and and achieve it. Uh, it simply says we're going to give you the right to negotiate something that cannot be amended. That doesn't guarantee it will pass. That makes uh, particularly the Democrats extremely nervous because they're afraid that that certain pet causes and pet issues, and they're not all illegitimate, don't get me wrong, um, will will just be railroaded. Now, what's going on right now is something called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a negotiation with Asian countries that, <laughs> that affect about 40% of the world's GDP. Here's the question. Do we want China, who's a part, major player, to dominate those conversations and have us it off to the side, or do we want to have a full seat at the table and have a lot of influence? This is one where you're going to have an unusual coalition. The president and a majority, a solid majority of Republicans, <laughs> hopefully overrunning Democrat resistance. That that will be a bigger question in the Senate than in the House. Congressman Al. It seems to me one of the things that makes this so politically difficult is that the politicians won't explain clearly to the American public why we have to do it the way we do it. And it's a very simple thing to explain. Almost everybody else we negotiate with has a parliamentary system. And when they finish negotiating, that's their position. We are the only ones that come back and, and usually run everything through the Congress and, and what they say. All the other competitors of ours Say, you, you get a second bite at the apple, and we don't want you to have that. And if we were them, we would take exactly the same position. 
so if we could if we could explain to people actually what the mechanics are, it would be easier to explain to them why we do it this way. Denise Crap. I understand what the mechanics are. I've been part of those, those mechanics, but I don't trust them. I mean, I, I've worked with a house staffer, and then I was in the administration. Based on what I saw within the administration, there's no way that I would give this president the ability to do the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And for one solid reason, and that's the maritime industry. Push comes to shove. This administration will send all of our jobs overseas. The shipbuilding and ship scrapping and the manning. No but, way. God, Mr. Chairman, when, when, we, when we talk about these international trade agreements that the president's looking for, it, it, it seems to me that the, the president is literally cutting off his nose to spite his face in his own party. That doesn't seem to me like a logical move for a lame duck president that's trying to get his entire coalition of Democrats on the Hill behind him. What, what's the mindset here? He's ideological before he is practical. But that seems to be a running theme in this entire administration over the past few years. They tried to indict and put in prison Dinesh D'Souza, who did a movie about this president, uh, mainly because he told the truth. The fact is, this president came to to his post uh, winning a very strong election with a lot of support in the United States, uh, but he was far more ideological than anybody gave him credit for. And he is a true, whatever you want to put a name on it, He's more than liberal. I'll just say that. Uh, and, and, and he he has his preconceived notions about international relations. He doesn't like the British. He doesn't like the French. He uh, wants to work a deal with Iran. Congress doesn't want that. He, he liberalized things with Cuba uh, for the first time in 50 years. And he's got exactly the problems that uh, Denise has talked about in terms of uh, the TPP, the, tra- uh, the uh, Pacific. Trans-Pacific. Uh, the fact is... He's not a good negotiator. He thinks he knows where he wants to go, and he goes there without regard to talking to the senators who have to approve his treaties. Carl Tuman, did the president do more damage to his next year and a half, 18 months, than may have been intended, or was this a calculated move on his part? He knew exactly what he was doing. I think he knew, I think he knew exactly what he was doing, and, uh, you know, he, we have to also take into consideration in Asia now, India. And he's just come, he's on his way back, stopped in Saudi Arabia uh, from a trip uh, with the Prime Minister of, uh, of India and others. And they're talking about American businesses establishing offices there and all kinds of things. So, you know, who knows, who knows what the outcome is going to be, but you know, I think that um, I think it's I think it could have a positive outcome. Bob Hines, did the president do more damage to his next 18 months than intended? I don't. No, I don't think he's done damage to it at this point. Let's see. What, let's see how he acts. I want to see what he's doing. What he's what he's trying to do. If he if he starts deciding that we're going to have a whole lot of uh, executive orders. Uh, it's going to so sour the uh, the place that we're not going to get anything done at all. Very good. I'm going to let that be the last uh, last word on that. Well, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the continuing fluid dynamics in the Middle East, the death of King Abdullah, a key ally in the Middle East, and the fall of the Yemeni's government, two big factors that are going to create havoc for our national security strategy 
When we come back, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again, I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining us today around the table is former Republican chairman of the Appropriations Committee and great representative of the great state of Louisiana, Bob Livingston. Mr. Chairman, again, thanks for having me. We love having you here. It's always a good time. Congressman Al, go ahead. I just, you introduce everybody as former. I think that's important. I think one of the reasons that we can all say what we say is because we're all former. One, that gives us some knowledge of what we're talking about. We also don't have another election to have to worry about. <laughs> Alan Moore? Yeah. And, and, and uh, in addition to what Al just said, we're not only all formers, but 
virtually none of us has the potential to be a future either. That's, yeah, that's true. Too. That's, that is very true. That is very. That is why we get away with what we get away with here at Backroom Politics. Hey, we're going to talk about a very serious subject. Last week, uh, a very, very critical time in the Middle East. Uh, for those who are not familiar, uh, last mid part of last week, uh, rebels inside Yemen were able to take the presidential palace and basically take over and create an anarchist state in Yemen, which is a huge, huge hit to our national security strategy as the Yemenis government were part of us going after ISIS and other Islamic jihadist organizations. At the same time, last week, it was announced by the Saudi government that a long-time ruler of the Saudi kingdom, uh, Saudi King Abdullah, had passed away at the age of 90. Uh, Chairman Livingston, you've been around Washington, you've been around Congress, you've seen our relationship with the Saudis for many, many years, and many of those years were ruled by King Abdullah, if not all of them. How big of a hit to our allied structure in the Middle East is the loss of King Abdullah? I think it has yet to be determined. Uh, we uh, we don't know uh, uh, too much uh, uh, about our relationship with uh, New King Salman. Uh, and uh, I think that he's supposed to be a hardliner, uh, but by the same token, Saudis have always played an interesting game with the United States. They they did make uh, their uh, their own land uh, in near Mecca uh, available to the infidel uh, during the first Gulf War. Uh, they've been our ally on a lot of these uh, these problems that we faced in the Middle East. Uh, but uh, they have mixed feelings. Their true enemy is Iran. It's a Sunni-Shia problem. And I think uh, when they want to be our friends, uh, they'll be our friends. When they don't, they, they won't. Uh, but more importantly, is they've been keeping <laughs> Islamic fundamentalist uh, uh, terrorists at bay uh, in their own turf by feeding the Wahhabis. And those were the guys that hit us on 9-11. Uh, and uh, so I, I think that we, we just have to be very, very careful. We, I don't want to say that the Saudis are not our friends uh, or that they're our enemies, but uh, uh, we should be very careful in our relationship with them. Bob, Bob Hines. The, um, the uh, takeover in uh, Yemen um, of the, the, of the uh, ISIS-type people, the, the, the radical jihadists, it puts right on the uh, Saudi Arabia southern border uh, a hostile enemy. But, but here's the thing about that. that. Go ahead. Here's the thing about that, because uh, according to reports that I've read out of the region and talking to a few friends of mine over at State Department, the rebels in Yemen aren't necessarily ISIS or the traditional Islamic jihadists. They were more ticked off at the iron fist rule of the current government as opposed to promoting a Sharia law state. It, but we still don't know all the facts. I just want to clear that up. Because and we just had two terrorists in Yemen. Yeah. Right. And, 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 they're not, and they haven't come out against the American government for that. It, it, it seems to me that that's more scary than anything else is the lack of knowledge about this group 
that we don't have, and that's a, that's a slight towards our intelligence community, yeah. wouldn't it be, Bob? Sure it is, but we, we also have a problem because we had a friendly government, which is now gone. Right. We have a government that is clearly uh, going to do major changes, they can. Right. And uh, it's, 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 it's just going to make it more difficult uh, for the Saudis and uh, for us, as long as they're there, and as I suspect they'll be there. Denise Crack. I'm a little frustrated with the intelligence community because well, let's remember the U.S. is coal. The U.S. is coal with a cast off of Yemen. So if we, you know, had that little problem, oops, we didn't accept that little small boat that came around side and blew people up sky high. What have we been doing for the past couple of years? I mean, this is a country that's at risk. This is a country that we were using to uh, position our own troops uh, in the region. Yep. Shouldn't we have a better understanding of what is going on in the region so that we don't send another ship in and risk another attack? But it, but it, 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 it seems to me, Alan Moore, in, in being a former undersecretary of, of international trade, the cost of oil now down below 40, 50 bucks a barrel, the death of King Abdullah, and the instability in Yemen, which now causes a bigger problem for other allies in the region, a la uh, King, Hussein, or, um, uh, uh, King of Jordan. Uh, this now seems that a fuse has been lit that if we don't put this out, could, be, could cause irrecoverable damage. To our national security strategy. There are fuses all over that region and have been for 50 years. And, and so, yeah, thank you. And, and it's not, so it's not like, you know, for the, the, the king was 91 years old. I mean, this wasn't the biggest surprise in failing health. Uh, as, as Bob said, we don't know what all this means yet. We got to sort things out with the new guy. With regard to Yemen, that's been an unstable place. The president has made the mistake that many presidents make in overstating the the uh, the importance, the stability. No, 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 the stability of a particular country, which he did with Yemen. He's done it with other places, and just about every president we've had make makes this mistake, and then they end up looking stupid. What what all of this does to me. And then the oil prices, who knows where they are, where they're going to be, where they're going to be a year from now. It, what this does is this encourages humility on the part of people who think they know what's going on. I mean, yes, we'd all love better intelligence. And when we don't have good information, then we want to blame somebody. A lot of this stuff is really hard to get to. It's not like you can just buy it or infiltrate you get you buy good information, bad information. You infiltrate, people die, um, uh, politicians die. We guess wrong about what's going on, how stable something is. Oil prices, nobody saw this coming. A year from now, when oil is who knows what, 80, 35, 110, we'll look back and say, "Wow, I didn't see that coming. I wish I'd known. I could have made a lot of money." Um, this stuff is it. it, it it is really hard to know, and it's they they use the term "30 years war" um, as an understatement. Congressman Al, well, it just occurs to me that what Denise said is what she thinks we should do, ought to, need to do. You're saying, but to do that is very, very hard. I think you're both right, you know. And and it, because it's going to be very difficult to do, doesn't mean we shouldn't move in that direction. Uh, the, the, the CIA. Uh, kind of like the Secret Service in the sense that 
this is something we've relied on heavily for a long, long time, and it's proving to be a weaker structure than we had uh, hoped, and, and we need to do something about it. Denise Krupp? The people we're talking about were real. I mean, the coal was my husband's sister ship. He knew the guys that got killed. I mean, to me, the men who died aren't numbers. <coughs> They're family friends. So I, I, that's why I get frustrated and say, I knew those people, okay? And if I know those people, I'll be damned if I'm going to let us keep doing this over and over again because I don't want to see any other friends die. Uh, Chair, Chairman Livingston. Yeah, I've forgotten exactly what year that was. But I think that was, was 2000. Yeah, okay. And, and George Bush, George W. Bush, had just uh, come into office. Correct. Uh, well, not if it was 2000. Oh, the, well, oh no, no, no. It was, oh, it was right. Bill Clinton. It was, no, that's Bill correct. Clinton. That was Bill Clinton. Well, I just remember that the FBI uh, had decided under the Clinton administration to make themselves a worldwide organization rather than just a, a collector of uh, 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 investigations in the United States. So they were intruding into the CIA's worldwide network, and, and that was one of their... Weber was dead at the time. And, yeah, yeah. and that was their big uh, big test. They sent 150 agents to Yemen to check out what happened to the coal, and they had they made one oversight. None of them, or maybe more one or two, spoke Arabic. Uh, and uh, here they were in the middle of Yemen, and they, had to, they, they were exposed because the the coal had just been hit by terrorists, and they realized this 150 agents uh, are going to get hit by terrorists. They had to put them into a little enclave. They couldn't speak uh, Arabic, and they really did no good whatsoever. But, but, but Chairman Livingston, but Chairman Livingston, when, you know, when we come back right now, we've got a situation where Congress now has a really delicate position that they've got to take as far as <coughs> not just the authorization, excuse me, the authorization of where to direct our national security assets, but how to fund it in that region. How does Congress come up with some sort of strategy that deals with the constantly fluctuating stability in that Middle Eastern area? Uh, Congress is uh, at the mercy of the executive branch that has the agencies uh, comprised of uh, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people uh, who are supposed to give them information on which they can act and set policy? Is this a hit against State Department, perhaps? I think. Oh, well, I, the, the, I think the, the State Department was hit 200 years ago and hadn't recovered since. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, CIA has done a credible job with what they have, uh, but they've been hurt uh, recently by the uh, uh, activities of the Senate and uh, Senator Feinstein took them on. Uh, and and I just think that uh, we need to go back and, and reorganize all of our agencies to do a better job than they're doing. We don't know what's going on in the Middle East. Alan's right. Uh, the, the Middle East is a mess, and it's getting worse because ISIS and Iran and all of the uh, the big players now are, uh, are are making gains at our expense. Alan Moore. Yeah. Well, and and even presidents who do have access to everything and who are cautious especially in foreign affairs, are prone to say things like, of ISIS, not that long ago, oh, that's the JV team. We've done crippling uh, damage to the Al-Qaeda. Now, he didn't make that up. He got that information from his own internal White House filters of all this intelligence, and he looked stupid. Was he stupid? No. But the operation around him failed him. But, it's a re again, it's a reminder to me of how hard it is to get it right 
and how important it is to be a little humble and a little bit careful. Well, and, Congressman Al. And it occurs to me, if, if you're going to look for Congress to deal with a delicate situation, <laughs> that's an oxymoron right on the top. <laughs> About the only time Congress has ever done anything like that has been when a very few, very powerful people, I'm maybe going back to the Arthur Vandenberg era, for that matter, right could on. sit down and and work out some things with the administration. But it, as a group, the Congress is not going to do anything delicate. But, but Carl Tubin, at the same time that we're dealing with a very delicate situation in the Middle East, Congress has took it upon itself to invite Benjamin Netanyahu, obviously our closest friend, in the region to speak before a joint session of Congress without consulting the White House. Is that a dangerous ploy as far as dealing with the delicate situation in the Middle East? Is, was that a smart move? I don't think so. <clears throat> I think that uh, I think it's unfortunately it's part of some kind of competition between the President and the Speaker. <clears throat> and um, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Netanyahu is putting his money on the Republican Party to help boost his election in Israel. The election in Israel uh, is probably closer than Netanyahu wants it to be. And therefore, he feels, he, I'm sure he feels, by coming over here and speaking to uh, the Congress uh, <clears throat> and, and not speaking to the President, shows him stronger than if he had not done this. Chairman Livingston. A couple of years ago, the president thought so much of uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu that he showed him the back door and shoved him out without any fanfare. Uh, look, uh, Israel is a small state of six or seven million people uh, in a very, very tough neighborhood. Their, their livelihood, their very survival, and their existential survival depends on some resolution of, of the problems in the Middle East, and the problems are getting worse. And this president is not negotiating with Netanyahu. I think the, chair, the Speaker Boehner was totally within his rights as a leader of the separate branch of government to bring Netanyahu over here. And I think Netanyahu is absolutely right to come here and explain the problems, the difficulties that his nation faces. Even, even, even at possibly the expense of twerking up some of our quote-unquote, allies in the Arab world? I don't think we can count on any allies in the Arab world. Today, they might be our friends. Tomorrow, they're not, and, and vice versa. Bob Hines. I think that the, I think the speaker did the right thing for this reason. It's very clear to me that the president just is doesn't want to get his hands involved in the Middle East. He wants to talk about it, but he doesn't want to do much about but it. But that seems like the easy way out, Bob. Well, what do you mean easy way out? What's easy? Just washing your hands of the whole situation, letting well, Congress dictate? Yeah. Well, no, I think I, I don't think co Congress is going to be dictating, but it would be kind of nice. Inviting a foreign head of state to speak to a joint session of Congress, to me, sounds like I'm washing my hands of it. We're going we're gonna to call the shots here. Well, I doubt, that the, I doubt that the Congress is going to develop foreign policy because, quite frankly, they're not competent to do it. <laughs> I, think, I think they know it. Congressman Al. Well, I'm just wondering if these people that think that, that Speaker Boehner did the right thing, I wonder how they felt about Jim Wright, who was basically taking over foreign policy in Latin America. Uh, and, and the thing that made me nervous as, as hell, uh, because he 
what was it? It was down in in uh, Ripper, 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 Ripper. Yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was in with both feet, uh, trying to run foreign policy in that area. And I'm thinking, what does this? How does the speaker have the flexibility, the ability to let make that go anywhere good? Well, Tim O'Neill got us out of there. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, good point, Alan Moore. Yeah, I I'm conflicted on this whole issue of of, of the Netanyahu move. I, I if I had been Mainer and I wanted to have Netanyahu come, I would have I would have and I've been staffing him. I would have said we need to tell the White House, and if they say no, we need to find out a way to make this work. We don't want to blindside them. We want to alert them. We want them to buy in. We got to figure out the timing and the terms. Look, folks, this is for Netanyahu. This is two things: his elections and the existence of his country in a very lonely place with 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 few with with few reliable allies. On the one hand, if America's his most reliable ally, he doesn't want to piss us off, um, and that includes the president. Um, so what 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 I would have recommended to the speaker is let's go down this road first let's tell them our intentions let's work something out maybe they did that that's not the that's not the way this has been reported before just sort of sticking it in his face at the same time if i had been advising the president or or writing uh, responses for the president i would not have written or suggested or released the very inflammatory language that the white house released upon hearing that that Netanyahu was invited. I would have played it very differently. I think mistakes were made on both sides. Netanyahu's coming. We'll see what happens. The the, the big issue at the moment is Iran sanctions, and I don't know if we're going to well, get we, back to talking about that. It, it's funny you say that. We just got a tweet in from a listener who said, what the speaker did is wildly inappropriate. Is the speaker going to handle Iran too? Uh, Mr. Chairman, you know, is, is now Congress setting the tone for at least driving some of the initiatives in our foreign policy? Has the president become that weak? No, I think the president has, still has the constitutional power for the next two years to uh, carry out foreign policy in the United States, but he's never been able to uh, operate in a vacuum. Congress, the, the Senate has, uh, has the uh, obligation under the Constitution to provide advice and consent, and they don't have to approve every treaty. Uh, that a president sends them. I suspect they're not going to approve too many uh, from this president in the next two years. I mean, in Cuba, Senator Menendez, a Democrat, is is outraged at, at the sudden announcement by the president to normalize relations there. Likewise, Senator Menendez and, and uh, several others are very worried uh, on the Democrat and the Republican side in the Senate about this uh, proposed treaty uh, and the constant delays uh, to get a, a, an agreement with the uh, Iranians. Uh, I, but going back to the, the speaker's uh, position, he had the right. He is, he is the leader. He doesn't have to consult with the president. Now, I agree with Alan. It would have been nice if he'd have done it. It probably would have been polite if he'd have done it. But the president hasn't consulted with him on anything. And I think the turnabout's a fair play. They're two independent branches. Congressman Al. But, but you, 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 apparently I didn't make the point about Jim Wright very clear. <clears throat> One of the reasons that I was sorry that Jim Wright had to resign was I wanted to see where that was going. And I think if we'd seen where it was going, it would not have gone well, and it might have given this speaker 
some pause before he started to merge himself into the middle of foreign policy. He simply doesn't have the wherewithal to be able to follow policy through. Uh, no speaker does, and, and Congress as a whole is not very good at that. Bob Hines? Well, I don't, I don't think that the speaker is deciding that he is going to run any piece of foreign policy. But here we have an, an, an ally, a country that clearly is supporting our policies on most everything. We're very close to them, and uh, they need all the help we can give them to stay independent. And the president just, you know, the president does, if you take a look at the Middle East, what has the president done that had any, that, that worked well? Now, I understand. Other than get bin Laden? That's good, but that's one that's one piece, but that's not really dealing with the problems of the Middle East. And the guy that helped us get him is still in prison in Pakistan. Oh, very good. Alan Moore? Yeah, just just to differentiate between um, what – and my, my recollection of Jim Wright's activities is, 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 <laughs> is very cloudy, but he was digging in and doing secret stuff. This is a highly visible – symbolic act. A guy comes to Washington, gives a speech. It, if he doesn't give the right speech in the right way, it could it could harm him in, in, in Israel and it could be harmful to, uh, to Israel's cause. Because it's so visible and kind of in your face, I would like to have seen some conversation about it. But addressing a joint session of Congress is not turning uh, foreign policy power over to the Congress, who has its role as been and, and we're not by, suggesting by, that by all of us. It was just it creates this moment of awkwardness, and then then you know some of this ugly language uh, in response about about <laughs> about Boehner and about Netanyahu. Uh, Carl Tubin. One of the main points why they want him over here is because of the president is negotiating with everyone, and a lot of the Republicans and others in Congress do not like the negotiations. So therefore, they wanted to bring that Yahoo over to give his reasons why the treaty shouldn't be signed and, and why everything should be as is. Alan Moore. We don't know what the treaty looks like yet. The, the whole issue right right now is whether we should pass some uh, further Iran sanctions. And the president now seems to have succeeded in holding off the movement in Congress to pass a bill, including Mr. Menendez, who who is who was in the forefront of Democrats saying, let's move forward, who just today said... We're going to hold back until March 24th. We're going to give two months to see what happens in the current negotiations before we, in the president's words, muddy the waters. I think the president had a point. The, the, there, there will not be uh, a, an Iran sanctions bill that passes the Congress for the, at least the next two months. And we'll see what grows out of the negotiations. We'll see what kind of an arrangement if any, does come forward, and then we can talk on the merits of what's in it. Carl Tuvin, real quick. Yeah, but, yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons. That's the main reason why he wanted Netanyahu here is to talk to the Congress about Iran. Uh, the, other, the other point I want to raise is that <clears throat> evidently with the Kurds and uh, the bombings that we've done, uh, uh, they've taken back a major city in, uh, in, uh, in the Syrian border. So you know, things are. I mean, everybody says what's happening, what's going on here. I think, <clears throat> I think we're, we're we're kind of picking up some some speed in in what can happen 
Uh, Very good. Real quickly, I want to talk about some breaking weather news here in the United States. Uh, the, the Northeast is getting battered with a, a tremendous winter storm that's affected the coastal areas of New England primarily. I uh, got a tweet while we've been on the air from a listener and a friend of ours up on Nantucket. And now CNN is reporting that power to the entire island of Nantucket has been killed. And it could be days before the entire island could see power again. That is a huge, huge problem. Our, uh, our our hearts are going out to you guys. You know, hunker down, stay warm if you can. But for all our friends up on Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, we're thinking about you. I hope our listener has a generator. Uh, <laughs> he's actually calling us and listening to us on a mobile phone. So <laughs> save your power, my my good friend. Save yeah. your power. Anyway, with that, we're going to take a break. When we come back. We're going to talk about the uh, the new power of some moderates in Congress. Can they help fix broken government? This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or... Whether it's something elaborate, like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Highland Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more once. And we're back here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining us this week is one of our favorite guests, is the former Republican chairman of the Appropriations Committee and longtime representative from the great state of Louisiana, Chairman Bob Livingston. Again, Congressman, we're really thrilled to have you here. Always a good time with well, you around good. the table. Thank you, Jeff. Hey, uh... We're going to be talking about uh, something that's starting to break up on Capitol Hill right now. We're starting to see, particularly in the Senate, but even in the House, we're starting to see a lot of swing state senators and representatives taking more moderate stances, even to the point of going against their own party and their own leadership. Uh, In a story published today in Politico uh, by, uh, by our good friend Manu Raju, uh, my talks about several instances where one example is you've got uh, Senator Pat Toomey, who's obviously, uh, you know, in a swing state in Pennsylvania, uh, was one of 15 Republicans to endorse a statement that humans contribute to climate change. Illinois Senator Mark Kirk, uh, again, hugely, hugely sensitive swing state. Senator Kirk was the only Republican to back regulations on petroleum coke. Uh, we're starting to see more and more moderates come through. We start looking at uh, Colorado Senator Mike Bennett, who's, who could be vulnerable in 2016 himself. Uh, we're starting to see the influence and, the, and the, uh, the, the increasing spotlight going on senators like uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia. We're starting to see the prevalence of people like Susan Collins who the the uh, moderate Republican out of out of Maine. The, the big question now is, could this resurgence of moderates and compromise be the fix to broken government? Chairman Livingston, is this a good trend that we're seeing with some of these swing state senators? Well, I, I don't recall any law ever being passed that said compromise was a dirty word or is, uh, is illegal. Compromise is is the core ingredient in the Constitution. If you don't have compromise, if, if people on one side don't come together with the other to actually do stuff, then nothing gets done. And we've had more than our share of that in the last few years. Now, the problem is uh, that members of Congress can come together more than they have in the last few years. Uh, but if the president doesn't come to the table and negotiate with them and compromise as well, then Frankly, the net product is going to be exactly the same, nothing. But, but Congressman Al, we, it almost seems like, going off of what Chairman Livingston was saying, that we've got a chicken and egg situation. That if the president doesn't go and start looking at compromise from Congress, how is it possible that his party, which is now in the minority in Congress, how are they incentivized 
to come together and start compromising with their Republican counterparts and vice versa on the Hill itself. Well, frankly, I don't know that that's as much the president's problem as it is Nancy Pelosi's. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is not, by her very nature, a great compromise. Uh, and uh, that's putting it mildly. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I'll, I'll let them say it. I won't. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it, it seems to me that, uh, that there is in the Congress today a Republican Party that feels they have been badly misused by the president and a Democratic Party that feels they've been badly misused by the Republicans. And they're going to have to just at some point say we're going to forget all of that and we're going to move ahead. Who's going to start that? Well, it's probably got to come from the middle somewhere on both sides. And uh, I, I want to see some some uh, a democratic response, uh, and I think it's there. Uh, I, I talk to a lot of uh, Democrats in the House who uh, <clears throat> are not overjoyed with the, the leadership that they've had for the last few years, and, and would, would like to see uh, it being more workable. Now, if they if they will come and join the the, the, the Republicans that uh, you listed, uh, I think there's a chance that they can make. The, the problem for the leadership of both parties very different. Instead of having to just deal with their extreme wings and worrying about that, they're going to have to worry about people that probably uh, are going to be able to make legitimate, moderate, comp uh, and compromisable proposals along the way. And it's going to be a very different game for both Mr. Boehner and for uh, Mrs. Pelosi. Uh, Alan Moore? Uh, Alan describing the Congress left out one group, and that is Democrats who felt that they were misused by the White House. Yeah. And that's an important uh, part yeah. of the group, too. Absolutely. And as I because we've talked about it around this table, and you, you, you yourself have, the, the House and the Senate are really different bodies, different institutions. Here, here. And, and, and the Senate is the place where the, the, the greater potential for compromise exists. Remember what it takes to get something through the Senate. You have to have on an, on an important issue 60 votes. Nobody, no, neither party has 60 votes. So if you want to pass something, anything, to even get into the position of working it out with the other body and with the White House, You've got to persuade 60 or more senators. There has always been a willingness among members of both parties, I would say in the House, but particularly in the Senate, to work across the aisle. There just weren't many opportunities, and we've, we've done a lot of Harry Reid bashing around this table. Well, I've done a lot of Harry Reid bashing around this table. <laughs> you um, and Bob. With the occasional acknowledgement of, from other, the grudging acknowledgement, yeah, maybe I have a point. Um, and and what what Mitch McConnell is trying to do is return, if you will, the Senate to what we talk about around here is regular, regular order, order, where committees have a role. They try to pass a bill. They try to get something that ha can can garner as many as 60 votes, if necessary, um, through the Senate uh, to move forward. That was not happening with with Harry Reid. It's not an easy matter. Mitch McConnell did not have and did not expect um, 100% loyalty from his people. The sen senators have six years. They are notoriously independent. And 
in Susan Collins constituency in uh in, in Maine. Maine is very, very different than Ted Cruz's constituency in Texas. That's so, for sure. So it was always amazing <laughs> it was always amazing to me that they different than Ted Cruz. That they would vote together and Harry <laughs> Reid drove them together. But now some of the natural differences will emerge and these folks are going to be able to uh to be more involved in compromise. Denise Crap. I would encourage folks to look at um House Armed Services. Very interesting members. And you've got Max Thurnberry and you have Adam Smith. They're describing themselves as problem solvers. Not somebody who wants to create a problem, but a problem solver. So those are going to be the folks that are going to be focusing on, on making a solution. My hope, though, while we've got the problem solvers, is that Congress doesn't trip up on itself. I am, um, as a vet of the Homeland Security Committee, I can remember getting into knockout drug out fights with judiciary who had which authority and who had oversight. And I bring that up today because apparently the House had to pull their immigration bill because there were questions about jurisdiction between homeland and judiciary. So but, that's another hurdle. It's like, wait a minute, let's get over who has jurisdiction so we can problem solve. Otherwise, we're not doing anything. You know, we're, we're talking about the Senate quite a bit, but, you know, last week we had on our friend uh, Rick Larson of Washington State, a Democrat, and he talks quite fondly of the friendship and the problem solving that he does with his Republican counterpart, Frank Lobiondo, Republican out of New Jersey. Uh, you know, we're seeing other alliances like this. We see alliances between Joe Manchin out of West Virginia and uh, 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 Lisa Murkowski out of Alaska. We're starting to see a lot more of that on both sides of the House. But Carl Tubin, you had a point you wanted to make. Well, well, you you talk about the Senate and, and, and... There's an article about Harry Reid, and Harry Reid, they asked Harry Reid, what do you thought about uh, what the majority leader is doing in the Senate? And he said, well, from what I've seen on TV, it looks good. But then there was an article in the paper the other day, or in Politico, one of the two, where on a, I think it was on the Keystone Bill, where Democrats wanted to offer amendments, and they were told no. And, and some of them would talk about it, and they said no. So, you know, it's, it's like the Democrats did it last time, the Republicans were doing it this time. Alan Moore looks like yeah. he's got a fact that he wants to bring up. I Go ahead, have Alan. a fact I want to bring up. How did you possibly know? So all of last year, 2014, in the U.S. Senate, there were 14 amendments. Total, so far this year in the Senate, there have been more than 14, including a large number on Keystone. So let's just understand this is a new Senate. Is it an easy Senate? Is it going to be a smooth functioning Senate? No, but it's very different. But let's not say that that it's the same old, same old. It's not. It's a different set of problems. It's a new guy in town, new set of rules, new roles. Bob Hines. And I wouldn't say necessarily that it's a new day in the House, but given the election, the Republicans have the largest number they've had since the 48, and they didn't, of the 17 or 18 members that got elected, most of them were not Tea Party. They're sensible people. You know, about five, five schedule, about two or three to one. So that's very helpful to the leadership because they've now in a position to say that they have enough without the Tea Party hardheads, they can pass a bill. 
Congressman Al. Just talking about the House's ability to compromise being very, very different from the Senate's and, and regular order. The way you get compromise in the House, and Bob, check me out on this. Well, you and I, you and I headed up the same committee. We we did, and indeed. we got along fine. We we absolutely. <laughs> did. That's because there were a lot of martinis involved with Al. Well, he's so much bigger than I am. <laughs> the, the the point I'm making is that expecting the House to compromise the way the Senate has the ability to do. Uh, because it's a smaller body, is wrong. You've got to get back to regular order. You've got to get back to the compromises start in the subcommittees and then they in the full committees. And then ultimately, compromises get made on the floor too. But you've got to start the process somewhere back in, in the lower levels. And whether that, whether the Republicans having such an overwhelming majority contributes to that or not, we will see. It's going to be harder, I think, for Boehner to convince his people they should compromise when they got all the votes. But but it's still, when Newt Gingrich basically dismantled the the committee structure, uh, we, we lost a lot of the ability of the House to be better than it's been lately. Uh, and and you need to bring back regular order. There. Well, I, 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 I would, I would, go on, Chair, Chairman Livingston. Elaborate on that. I, 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 having been a chairman of uh, of a committee, the appropriations committee, during the Gingrich time, I would say that uh, that that Newt didn't deserve that uh, because it did happen later under Hastert, and it got worse under Nancy Pelosi, and uh, uh, frankly. Uh, uh, it, it's been evolving and getting better under Boehner, but not, it's not there yet. And well, one of the problems, one of the problems <coughs> is that they've gotten used to the schedule. And I think the last time I was here, we talked about this. Uh, members of Congress started leaving their families at home, and their spouses wanted them to be at home, uh, but they had to politic, and so they had less time for their spouses. So they they started working on the leadership not to come in on Mondays. And not to come in on Tuesday mornings, but come in on Tuesday afternoons and then leave on Thursday mornings or Thursday afternoons. So all the business of the House, all 90 subcommittees all the, and committees were all done on Wednesday mornings. And that's impossible. The place wasn't running. And as a result, Democrats didn't know Democrats, let alone Republicans. And Republicans didn't know Republicans. And, and so nothing was done. And I'm hoping <clears throat> under Mitch McConnell in the Senate, then all of this this work routine is going to start changing. They're going to work longer hours. They're going to get to know each other. They're going to encourage travel, and they're going to be able to compromise because they're going to trust each other because they're going to know each but, other. But, and, but Chairman, and, and, and I, I completely agree with that. That's Understanding that is the way you get to what I think the goal is, which is restoration of the committee. But, 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 but Chairman Livingston, this puts... Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell in a very awkward position where you have people like Rob Portman, Bob from your state of Ohio, and Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. Uh, you know, we met, we mentioned Pat Toomey and Lisa Murkowski. How does Mitch McConnell, as a Majority Leader in the Senate, garner up the true support to get the initiatives done? With the thought process that we have independent thinkers like the senators, and we just leadership. And and frankly, I think Harry Reid dropped the ball. Uh, and as, as a result, he, I don't know, what happened to him? The poor guy got the hell beat out of money when he fell off his motorcycle or something. Uh, no, when his elastic thing broke and yeah, it smacked right. him in the head. 
Anyway, uh, no, the, but the, the problem, Mitch McConnell promised ahead of time that he was going to restore a regular order. And as Alan said, they've already had more votes in the last few weeks than they did all last year. Uh, so I think it's headed in the right direction. But Mitch has to learn to manage these different people. You're absolutely right. Each senator is an autonomy unto himself. And I think that uh, gradually they're going to be able to work it out, and he's going to be—he's going to know how to get things done. But Bob Hines, when you start looking at the personalities involved, you take somebody like a Kelly Ayotte, a Rob Portman, a Ron Johnson, a Pat Toomey, and you put them against somebody like Ted Cruz or even the new freshman senator out of Oklahoma, Jim Langford, who's very much to the right of center. Uh, that becomes a very delicate balancing act. For Mitch McConnell? Well, it depends upon how many people are acting like Ted Cruz. And it seems to me that in the. But we have a possibility right now. You have Joni Ernst, you have uh, Jim Langford, you have Ted Cruz himself. Yep. You have a core group right now, yes, mostly is. Midwestern and Southwestern Republicans, that are going to stick the hard line and hold Mitch McConnell's foot to the but fire. You just listed all of the, the moderates. That are coming up on the Republican side, and hopefully it's on the Democratic side too. Uh, so, I think Cruz's ability to screw things up is less than it was before the election. Although, although you know, we we don't, you know, although we'd like to see, I personally, as a moderate Republican, would like to see more of Kelly Ayotte, Rob Portman, Ron Johnson, Pat Toomey out there working with people like. Joe Manchin out of West Virginia. Uh, when we see them, you know, the big joke on the Senate side right now is the most dangerous place in Washington D.C. is between Ted Cruz and a camera. Uh, how do you how do you really balance Has out? Schumer giving up that position. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's a battle. <laughs> it could go either way. The Republicans have the majority, so now it's Ted right. Cruz. Right. No, no, no. Second, second most. Second most. <laughs> I'm still number one. <laughs> Inside the Beltway jokes here, uh, but Bob, again, you know, when you go to the Balancing Act and trying to push an initiative, uh, I go back to what Chairman Livingston said. It is a matter of leadership. Does Mitch McConnell have the ability to call, to herd these cats and prove the leadership that everybody's dying for? I believe he does for several reasons. Number one, he's a pretty darn smart guy. Number two. He's been in the minority for a long time. Number three, he's now in the majority, and he wants to make it look good. He wants to. He wants to do something. He wants to be. This is his opportunity to do some good work, and I think he's got a wonderful opportunity. And I suspect that he will be willing to do some negotiations uh, to the Democrats, and I suspect we'll get some legislation that uh, might surprise people. Chairman Livingston, is the hardline right-wingers in the House enough to disrupt that stance that they just, they just had a test. Uh, a, a bunch of them, about 20, took on uh, Speaker Boehner and tried to depose him. Uh, one of them from Texas uh, uh, was on Sean Hannity's show for the last month and a half uh, trying to gin up uh, support. He got three votes. I uh, know. The answer is they... they can try to raise hell. Uh, they they had a, a a real problem with the passage of that last appropriations bill in the last session. 
but they overlooked one thing. That is, they weren't in a majority last time. They are in a majority last time. They have the Senate, and if they'll just relax, they can get stuff done. But doesn't Even that... if it means putting stuff on the president's desk and him vetoing it, then they have to... Uh, but doesn't, that empower, but doesn't that empower people like Ted Yoho out of Florida, Jim Bridenstine out of Oklahoma, and and, uh, and, and and Louis Gomer out of Texas? Those guys are always going to have a problem. But now the numbers for the Republicans are such that the speaker has a lot more latitude than he had last year. Carl Tubin. Well, first of all, you know, the Republicans... <laughs> want to stay in power, and they want to win in uh, 216. In order to do that, they must produce. Right. We were talking about people seeming to be more moderate than they were uh, when they were when the Democrats were in power. Well, you know, they're also talking about inequality, and, and they're also talking about the inequities as far as the middle class is concerned. We never heard that in the last two years or four years. From Republicans, and now we are. By the way, it's 2016. 216 was when you were chairman of the Democratic Party in Maryland. Denise <laughs> Crabb. Well, it's going to come down to money. I'm going to follow up with Carl just said. The 2016 election is going to cost a lot of money, and people aren't going to open their wallets of the folks who can't produce. I mean, that's just a simple fact of life. And you know, well, I've talked the, to enough. Koch brothers. Koch brothers. Will. Koch brothers will, but there are going to be a lot of others that are going to refuse to open their pockets. And what they're saying, what I'm hearing, is, nope, not going to do this. We have to manage our budget as a business. Congress needs to be able to manage it. I mean, and that's the correlation that people have right now. And Congress recognizes this. I mean, I was at a, a there have been several fundraisers that have been held already this week. You know why? I mean, it's January of 2015. The election's not until November of 2016. Because people are trying to build their war chests up now. And they're worried about primary. And they are. And that puts even more of a pressure on them to start behaving, start producing. Can, can, can a successful Senate be the solution to inter-party squabbles, Mr. Chairman, that we've seen in previous years in Congress, the act of primarying the no, I, incumbents? I think, I think with a 24-hour news service and computer podcasts, and, uh, and, We're part of the solution, and, Mr. Chairman. We're and, part of the solution. I, I, I'd like to tell you, Justin, I think it's the solution, but I think it's also the problem because uh, you, ha you have a constant barrage of information. And as people become more aware, uh, and I want to come back to that, but as people become more aware, they put more pressure on these guys. And so they constantly think they have to raise money to accommodate it, and it's a bad thing. Uh, are they more aware? Well, the, I saw this thing the other day when they asked who the first president of the United States was, and the guy said uh, he thought it was Winston Churchill. Uh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> well, that, that goes back to something I've been saying for a long time, that because of the 24-hour news cycle, we've created a very uninformed, very lazy electorate in our country. Uh, but, but The fact that we're about the only program that is truly bipartisan, that's it's on that, you know, says something. We're, we're small, we're growing, but being able to sit down and disagree, as we have here today, and do so in a friendly way is uh, is very important. And that's very true. That's very true. But Bob Hines, in the, in the grand scheme of things, we've talked for the past five years that we've been on the air 
about compromise and civility. It's been a mainstay of our mission as far as getting information about what really happens in Washington out there, but it seems to have eluded the leadership here in Washington. Uh, but every time we get a former member or a current member of Congress down here, they keep spouting off compromises to solution, but it seems to go by the wayside the second they get installed as a representative or a senator. How do we differentiate that? How do we fix that problem? Well, first of all, I think the election last year, I believe, has begun to fix the problem because most of the Republicans are of the establishment order rather than of the Tea Party order. That's an important thing, very important, because it gives, it, it makes sure that the speaker, who is uh, he's conservative, but he's a moderate, he's a sensible guy, he is not going to. He's not going to write crazy legislation and slam it at the president's door. He's going to try. He's going to do some things that the president may not like, but he's not going to do anything that that we would consider to be lunatical and right wing. Well, and you and you, Congressman Al, raised the issue about whether what happens in the Senate is going to have any effect in the House. And I think that that if if all the good things we think might happen in the Senate do, do occur, it really strengthens John Boehner's hands over in the House to work more with the mother. Yeah. Right. And, and, and and he can do it. I mean, I happen to have a lot of respect for, for the Speaker. Uh, not everything he does, uh, such as sitting up there behind the President looking like a grouch, uh, which is not... <laughs> That's a not, very well-tanned grouch, by the way. It's not the John Boehner I know, and it's not the John Boehner that he can be if he is given a little more leeway and the Senate can help in that. But he didn't move, and he didn't pick his nose, and he's always okay. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Or did, he didn't cry either, so that's, a good, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I want to ask you a question that we've asked in, in previous shows here is, you know, we, we're, we're seeing, as our discussion is pointing out, some advent of some more moderate stances, particularly in the Senate, but also in the House. But at the same time, it seems to me, as is the case with Ted Cruz, Joni Ernst, and Jim Lankford on the far right, Elizabeth Warren and Chuck Schumer on the far, far left, are we going to start seeing more of a polarization of the extremities of the parties versus the coming together in the middle? Well, I think we've been seeing it for several years, ever since about the mid-1980s when the Supreme Court uh, ruled that uh, in the House uh, a gerrymandering uh, had to accommodate uh, minority districts. Uh, as your, 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 your cities, like the city of New Orleans, came together. It was, it was, when I got elected, it was divided into half. It had to be brought together to a minority uh, member of uh, the Congress to get elected. It was, and, and that happened. Your inner cities became Congress districts, and your suburban and rural areas became more conservative at, at the same time. And so the Congress became polarized. Uh, it is now, we've had 20 or 30 years of that, and people are beginning to learn how to deal with one another. They really haven't in the past. I think it's an evolutionary process that the country is coming out of and working, to, uh, trying to put his uh, act together. Is, is it complete? No. Uh, you've got Elizabeth Warren and you've got Ted Cruz. Uh, they're, they're, they're the polar opposites. Uh, but my sense is the country's not there on either side, and neither one of them will be elected. Very good. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word for this segment. When we come back, because we are a slave to pop culture and media, we're going to talk about the Flake Gate. 
We're going to talk about, because everybody else is, where you got to jump on this. When we come back, this is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, Go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Block Talk Radio. And because we are a whore to pop culture and pop media and the, the useless 24-hour news cycle, we're going to bring up a subject that apparently has dominated much of the headlines over the past week. It's Deflategate. It's Deflategate. We're going to talk about it. So, for those of you who have not watched TV over the past week, a little bit of an insight... During the routing that the New England Patriots put on the uh, Indianapolis Colts two weeks ago in the AFC Championship, word comes down after the game that apparently the balls that were being utilized in that game, being handled by the New England Patriots and their equipment management team, were deflated, possibly below NFL standards, which gives... Clearly below. Allegedly. Allegedly. Come on. we got to give jurisprudence... Full disclosure, I'm a Patriots fan, so I'm gonna be slightly de- I'm gonna be slightly defensive on this. Cheater. I'm sorry. We're still live here. I'm still moderating. Let me moderate. Precisely. Exactly. So Cheater, don't bring the police for heaven's sake. 
So wait a minute. So, so if Brady is the case, is anybody besides Justin in support of the Patriots? No. Thank you, Carl. Okay, two. Carl. Two. Thank you. Two out of. Uh, well, no, no. First of all, I'm House with. Neither of us. You know, I'm so glad that this is being recorded. Bob, that is your new ringtone on my phone. Um, all, right. all right, back to serious subject. Back to serious subject. Uh, as of as of the past 48 hours, the NFL has announced that apparently they have artwork, they have video of an equipment manager handling the balls and possibly deflating these balls. So it brings up the question. Number one. The biggest question I have throughout all of this, and I will start with you, our our esteemed <laughs> our esteemed guest, Chairman Bob Lewis. Are you saying he's the balls expert here? <laughs> he just announced he's all in favor of deflated balls. No, no, no. I, no. I've never no. been. Oh, never been in favor. I'm sorry, I misrepresented that statement. You better be careful. I'll take my balls and go home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know where to go with this. <laughs> such a mistake. <laughs> this is such a mistake. Chairman. Let's see if we can get back on board here. Chairman, Chairman Livingston, the big question I have is, why does this story dominate the news cycles the way it has over the past That's 10 days? I told you I didn't need that drink. <laughs> <laughs> and look, it, it, it's a diversion. Uh, we have the Middle East in flames. We've got Russia coming into uh, uh, Ukraine. We've got China usurping uh, the territory all throughout the South Pacific. And we're talking about Patriots' deflated balls. fact <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, look, I, I saw the Packers game, and I'm still suffering for that. Uh, yeah. they, they blew that they game. Blew that game and and what, a, what a tragedy it was. I didn't even see the uh, the uh, Patriots game. But I, uh, uh, I, I have seen most of the reviews, many of the reviews afterwards, and I have to say that I think uh, as much as Brady is a, is a superstar and uh, Belichick is, is probably uh, fantastic in his own role, they, they stretch credulity. Bob Hines, as a fan of football, you, you've, you've seen the evidence brought forward. There's still not truly hardcore evidence that, number one, Brady or Belichick knew that this was happening, or B, that this was, in fact, an illegal act. Uh, Commissioner Roger Goodell has still not issued an opinion saying that this was truly illegal. Is, is this now a judgment in the media that we're having to deal with as opposed to jurisprudence through well, the process? It's a, it's a search in the media. They're trying to find out what went up. It's apparently now they have identified uh, some uh, staff that may have been involved in this, you know, reducing the uh, the the, uh, the pressure, the, the air pressure inside the, the ball. The ball, of, of, you know, a couple that down from. Between a twelve, between twelve and thirteen, down to nine, you know, which is about twenty-five percent, which means you can get a lot. If you're the quarterback, you can sure as hell get a better handle on that ball in a rainy day. So that's that's what is going on now. Question is, do you suspect that a staffer who is a lower-level guy? And uh, doesn't have any authority to do much of anything except carry the balls out to the out to the stadium and put them on the ground in a bag. Is he 
take it upon himself to decide that we are going to loosen up the ball. No. Now, no. I don't think that's likely. Now, I don't know whether uh, jokingly the quarterback said, why don't you love snows up for me a little bit today? Or I don't know what happened. I have no idea. I don't know if Belichick, we know that Belichick has cheated in the past. We know that for a fact. Define cheating. He's, define, define cheating. cheating. No Bill, Bill I-I-L-G-A-T-K. <laughs> Belichick. There's <laughs> also around the table that have played sports. And when you are playing sports, whether it's a JV, the varsity level, or professional, you know what the equipment is that you're handling. You know how it's supposed to feel. You know how it's supposed to work. It was his responsibility the first time he gripped that ball. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Careful. Careful. Yes, I know. And he, he should have recognized this. I mean, you are of the caliber of the person who's getting paid millions of dollars. It is your responsibility right. to recognize no, that there's a, a problem. And if you don't notify it, that's your responsibility, not blaming it. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me jump in. Let me jump in with a fact here. But wait, let me jump in. Let me jump in with one fact here. I, I mean, I, I've known a couple of, of professional football players. In fact, one of them a quarterback. Nothing of any magnitude. Did about three seasons, and he's now a very successful stockbroker. But – when I talked to him about this, he said that as a quarterback, especially as a starting quarterback, you then say, you know, I, the, the equipment manager has a way of, of understanding, hey, this is how my quarterback likes his balls. Shoot. <laughs> it's like football. his football. You know, some like our balls. Some, some like – you look at – you look at some like a, a John Elway or a Kaepernick who have who have big hand spans. They like them a little bit firmer. They can get it around and get that spiral going. There are some, i.e., Tom Brady and others who like a little softer, who don't have that big hand span, that like it a little bit softer. And they tell the equipment manager, I like mine a little bit softer as opposed to deflating it to 9.2 PSI. Alan Moore. Yeah, there, there are several factors, all of which have, have, have been mentioned. It's a quite, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world that's not happy. Let's find something that's a nice diversion. It's a, it's a two-week time frame between the conference championships and the Super Bowl. What are we going to talk about? Here's a, here's a fun thing to talk about. The question is, and, and, and Belichick has a history of spying, paying big fines, and losing a first-round draft choice. That's the definition of cheating. When you suffer that kind of penalty – uh, for for being caught in the act, spying on the enemy in ways that no one uh, is had had done prior to that, at least so far as anybody knew. Now, here's the thing: Did Belichick know about this? Probably not. No. Did Brady know about this? Almost certainly. The quarterback knows what he wants. He's got the ability to talk to his equipment guys. They probably had a little understanding, especially <laughs> if the weather is bad. I don't expect Brady to come forward right now and say, "Oh, you got me." Let let everybody go through denial. Focus on the game. Let the game come out. The rules are pretty clear about what constitutes a violation. What's not clear is what the penalties are. That's where the the, the commissioner has all sorts of power. He there's a lot of pressure on him to to once they figure if this guy is is on camera. What did he do? Why did he do it? What's the penalty? But it'll be that'll be after the game. They're not going to redo the game. They're not going to replay the game. The rules don't even permit that. They so, destroyed so, the Colts. They 
destroyed so, the Colts. So, well, of, of course, with a cheating is, ball. Oh, That's, come on. Well, you know, they it, ran the ball. It, listen, it doesn't... It, the, they the ran point, the ball. The, the passing point, game wasn't even in fact. You know, they, what about all the previous games? You are, you are, such, a, you are such a homer that you, that you harm your already weak credibility um, by, by saying, oh, they beat them. They beat them up. What if, it been a, Chairman, what if they had won by two points? Oh, stop it. That was never going to happen. Chairman Livingston. I think there is an open question about what about all those other games, and nobody can go back and figure it out. But uh, I don't think anything's going to happen. These guys are all going to be intact. The Super Bowl's going to go forward. Brady's going to be the quarterback, but he's probably going to end up paying a fine. And from now on, if the NFL doesn't take those balls under their own control and not let the teams handle them, I think that would be a, a, a far better way to handle uh, Carl, Carl Tubin? That's a very valid question, and Carl Tuzman. The difference also, isn't that obvious. Also, uh, uh, wait a minute. Also, at the beginning of the game, shouldn't the refer- the referees were supposed to go over and look at the, the footballs on both sides? Good catch. And and try to catch them there, and they didn't do it. So they do that ahead of they do that ahead of the game. Yeah. They inspect every single one and they measure it. But then they give them back to the, the these equipment guys on each team. I mean, it's a but little Colts, bit bizarre. Wait, but here's the thing: is the Colts played. With some of the the quote unquote deflated balls, and they didn't have any complaints. They did not play. They play with their own balls. Each team plays with its own balls. This is something that little boys learn to do when they're young. And they family show, family show, family show. Congressman Al. I uh, I am from Washington State, uh, and so I like the Seattle Seahawks. I have I have loathed New England for years. Uh, I, I I loathe Bill Belichick uh, for his past record and all of this, but this is nonsense. Everybody hates winners. I don't winners. like him because well he 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 patrols the sidelines with a look on his face a lot like <laughs> like Boehner sitting behind the president. Of the <laughs> and and it just seems to me this is a lot about nothing to have this. To be the primary story leading into the Super Bowl seems to me to be ridiculous. It is the media-driven thing, again, media that this this is going to get sorted out one way or another. Uh, I think if there's a villain in this, it's the incompetence of the people running the NFL. And, they, and this is just <coughs> the last thing that's come forward so far about how inept the... Uh, What's his name? The, the, Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell. Uh, so it, it, I, I'm hoping that when it all settles, Goodell gets it bad. But I am not, as a Seattle Seahawks fan, terribly upset about Bill Belichick, whom I don't like, uh, and the team whom I don't like. But I don't see this as something that, that we should be spending this much time talking about or the media. Congressman Al, let's, let's, return, let's return our on. attention to the commercial. Wait, wait, con- Congressman the Al, Super Bowl commercials. That con- needs to be our focus. Congressman Al, that was a very well thought out 
very well articulated objection overruled. Bob Hines. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I know, John. Yeah, I think that we will know a little bit more as we go forward uh, about how this happened. I'm not sure we'll ever get to the bottom of it. But that is not the way I look at this issue. The National Football League is probably the most popular sports league in America. Uh, the, the, the fans are just, you know, what they're, whether they're at the game, on a home game, or in the, in the, in the, home, in the stadium on, the, on, the, on when they're playing, uh, they're hot, they're crazy, they love it. It's, it's the best, it's the best game, best fun you can have right now. Now, my thought is that I think that while it, it is a relatively severe uh, penalty, I, unless, unless you can clear the Patriot structure. I would take a first-round draft choice away from them next year, in April or May, whenever they do this year, just in order to say, stop, we, we can never have anything like this again. We, this is, if we're breaking the rules, we're going to get you. I think it's important. They're going to have the last It's pick. very important to do that. They're going to have the last pick in the first round of the NFL draft last year. You're going to take that away from, oh, yeah, we'll not? wait till second round. Oh, <laughs> that's just too bad. With that, with that. I, 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 I don't understand why a guy as smart as Bill Belichick would be playing with balls he had asked to be underplated. He had some hand. What would continue it when he was, what was the score? 42. 42. It seemed to no, me they switched them at halftime. They switched them at halftime. They yeah. discovered at halftime and reinflated them. No, 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 but I don't think Belichick even knew. Well, I think this was I, between I Brady and the equipment. Yeah. The point I was trying to make: why would a, why would a coach who was that far ahead be playing around with the with the footballs? I doubt, it, I doubt that he was. Yeah, I doubt he was too. Go ahead, Carl, too, and real quick. They found out when a coach intercepted a pass. That's when they that's when they, they found out and he told the referee. The other thing is you've got two great two good teams playing against each other, two great quarterbacks, and it's going to be a, a, a big a, a big uh, fan base anyway to watch the game. This has probably even made it bigger because more people know about now about the teams and what's going on and, and the other and a lot of people, are, more people are going to watch the game. You're going to have, you're going to have a cameraman standing on top of that football. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, I'm with that. I'm just going to predict right now the Patriots are going to be the national champions once again. And now it's time for my Cheers. favorite part of the show. Hate, hate the game, don't hate the players. Uh, it is that time for my favorite part of the show, Tell Me a Story, where we talk about news, innuendo, and rumor going inside the beltway, outside the beltway. Congressman Al, tell me a story. The, the thing that Seahawks fans should be angry about is that all of the attention has gone to the other side. All during this two-week period, nobody has said anything about the Seahawks. Nobody's going to their media day. <laughs> What was that? Nothing. Forget it. Yeah, I, I, I think I will. Uh, forget it. Uh, <clears throat> I'm done. Good. Thank you. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Um, last week, a real giant 
of American jurisprudence died. His name was William Gagan, Cincinnati boy, came to Washington uh, at the beginning of the uh, Kennedy uh, presidency. He is he probably did more more writing of the uh, Civil Rights Act than anybody else. He's a he's a wonderful guy. Very solid guy. I mean, his politics and mine were quite different, but he was a he was a wonderfully solid person, and, and did a lot of good work for the country as he saw it. And I don't complain about it. But uh, uh, at 92 years old, he died uh, on Thursday last week, and I got to tell you that uh, at the funeral, you would uh, it was a model. It was a, it was amazing how large it was. Wow, and uh, it was it was people who like myself knew him and loved him and uh, wanted to be there. Yeah, and it was uh, it was a wonderful experience. And uh, Bill Gagan is, I, I suspect, is uh, being a good Irish Catholic is undoubtedly sitting at the right hand of God at the moment. There we go. There we go. Chairman Livingston, tell me a story. One of the unfortunate aspects uh, of uh, uh, contemporary politics until the last few years was the demise of the U.S. veteran in the United States Congress. Jack Martha, being an old Marine, was a good friend of mine. Uh, he was a Marine in Vietnam. There were a few left uh, around. I was in the Navy, but... Uh, Howard Coble was in the Coast Guard. Yeah, there were a few of us, but there, there really weren't that many... Uh, now, one of the benefits of the, if you could call it that, of the Iraq and the Afghanistan wars, is that we're getting a whole new breed of, of veterans, and some of them are just absolutely outstanding, and they're getting elected to the Congress. And one of the ones that comes to my mind is this guy from South Dakota, who is Zinke, who is the commanding officer of SEAL Team Six. Mm. Now, how much more of a better do you get? That makes and, I, and I watch these other guys, uh, uh, kiss, kissing them or get a kiss. I don't know. I better not name them. I'm getting myself in trouble. But there are just a lot of them that are just outstanding young people. And, I, and it just does my heart good to see these guys take over and make sense and, and, and show what America's all about. Now he doesn't make him a legislator, makes him a badass, too. So i got to give him credit for that. It's great to get legislators who are... Con- who are absolutely, absolutely. Carl Tubin, real quick, tell me a story. Is it in this century? Yes. Okay, good. We were talking about capital gains before, and there was a poll when this issue was before Congress and found out that an overwhelming majority of people wanted capital gains. And the poster said, hmm, that's interesting. Let's go back and find out the same people why they were interested in capital gains. And, and the, the answer that came back is, well, we aspire to be able to use the deduction that is going to come because we're going to be rich one of these days. Yep, very good. Denise Kraft, real quickly, tell me a story. On January 12th in the Wamada Tunnel, one individual died and 80 others uh, were sent to a hospital yeah. because of a fire that occurred. Last week, you got, you got to tell everybody outside of Washington what WMATA is. WMATA is the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority. An individual died. Uh, one of the remediation. You're talking about the metro. Yes, the metro. Subway. Subway, yes. One of the measures that they proposed in uh, remediation was to schedule regularly um, scheduled drills. It was going to be quarterly. Now, I found it a little puzzling because back in 2007, uh, Congress wrote a rule called Implementing the Re- Recommendations of the 9-11 Commission Act, which had a whole lot of sections about mass transit, which included 
drills. So my recommendation to those of you who live in a metropolitan area is to go contact your subway system operators and say, how often have you been doing those drills? And I say that because what we found out here in D.C. was that the firefighters and the metropolitan authorities weren't able to communicate. In fact, not only were they not able to communicate, they were using runners because their radios were broken. Right. And Alan Moore, tell me a story real quick. Yeah, 70 years ago today, uh, the Russians liberated Auschwitz, um, this grotesque, horrible uh, location of 10,000 people per day being killed, um, half a million in all. Um, it, as the survivors die off, one of the great fears of, of, of Israel, friends of Israel, and, and friends of humanity is that as the horrors of the Holocaust disappear into the past, our ability to remember, learn those lessons is reduced. It's one of the reasons that we, we that, that, that President Netanyahu wants to come over here, his friends in the Congress. More and more people don't know. If there are people who think that Winston Churchill was our first president, just imagine how people today, young people today, would define the, the, the Holocaust. So on this particular day of, of remembrance, uh, I hope that some of us uh, uh, will 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 consider ways to uh, help all of us remember. That's and true. As, as, and as families figure out what they're going to do on vacations and where they're going to take their families, a visit to Auschwitz, which I'm not sure that I was fortunate. It was an incredibly emotional experience. Well, even those and who come here to the National Holocaust Museum. We did that together. It wasn't Auschwitz. It was, it was a different camp, but it was a right. concentration camp. It was appalling. Yes, it was. Uh, My story this week is I had a great meeting. There's a new organization (laughs) in town called Next Century Cities. I had a meeting today with their executive director. It is a unique organization that is promoting wide-span global broadband (laughs) coverage for all areas of America, not just a select few, and they're pushing forward. What they're finding out is it's the large corporate providers that are trying to knock them down and are lobbying the FCC to limit the pipes that go into a lot of these rural areas. If we're going to talk about true infrastructure, this is a unique organization. I invite everybody to go take a look at Next Century Cities and see what they're trying to do that will help alleviate some of the uninformed electorate. If you put broadband in some of these rural areas, they might actually take the initiative to look up on how they're covered. Great, unique opportunity. I wish them all the success in the world, and I hope that we get some good, good legislation through the 114th Congress that will regulate this very, very fondly. That being said, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tuvin, Denise Krupp, Alan Moore, special thanks to our good friend and our special guest today, former Republican Chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, Louisiana Congressman, Chairman Bob Livingston. I am your host, moderator Justin Russell. I will be back with the rest of the roundtable next week as we talk about all things political inside the Beltway and out. And we'll be live from here. Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on the web at www.backroompolitics.org. You can t- follow us on Twitter at 
Backroom Politic, or you can email your concerns, your questions, and your support for the New England Patriots to me, Justin, ah, at backroompolitics.org. Go Seahawks, Seahawks. Seahawks. Oh, Seahawks. Hate the game. Hate the game. Hate the game. Don't hate the player. We'll Anybody see you. We'll see you next. We'll, we will talk about that next week here on Backroom Politics. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye.